Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we talk about the latest tactical updates from the front, look at the debate in the Democratic Party in the US on the country's support for Ukraine, and we hear the shocking account of life in Russian captivity from Colin Freeman, who interviewed two recently released American volunteers who had been captured by Russian forces. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 25th of October, day 244, and today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, and freelance journalist Colin Freeman. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Yeah, there's been a, big, a, few, a few tactical updates, actually, in the last 24 hours. So in uh, Melitopol, down in the south, so Melitopol, about 100 k's west of Mariupol, about the same distance south of Zaporizhia. Melitopol's in Zaporizhia Oblast. Um, there was a car bomb, car bomb there outside the offices of Zarmedia TV. It's a TV company. The um, the exiled uh, Ukrainian government uh, officials for the region said, um, uh, "quote This is what the heating in the building of collaborators and propagandists should look like." Um, unquote. The pro Moscow administration said five people were injured there, but it looks like. So we saw a number of uh, partisan, alleged partisan um, attacks recently around around the south. This might be uh, might be a pickup in in that campaign. We will watch that. Um, secondly, so in the, in the Donbass, we know that uh, that Russia, in the form of the Wagner Group mercenaries, have been really sort of bashing themselves against the, the town of Bakhmut, trying to trying to break through there in the centre with very limited success. In actual fact, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the, the, the head of Wagner, was uh, trumpeting the Wagner line a couple of days ago on social media, which is actually slightly to the east of, of Bakhmut and back almost to the, almost to the, the, the February the 24th line um, of, uh, of, of emplacements, trenches, um, anti-tank ditches, vehicle obstacles, etc., etc. So, you know, what started off in February as a three-day lightning attack um, to take the country is now turned into look at our fantastic anti-tank ditches back in 
500 k's east. Um, however, Ukrainian forces have, have continued to push against that that line. So slightly to the north of Bakhmut, there's the town of Kramina, which is on the main road running running uh, north-south, and that runs down into the Severodonetsk Lysychansk area. Um, so Ukraine have been trying to push through after their lightning assault a couple of months ago. They've been trying to continue that advance through to take that road um, and the town of Kramina. They are inching closer to that. They're sort of pushing around from the north to try and cut it off. Um, been small incremental gains there, um, but it is it is tough going, very tough going. Um, and the only other thing to notice uh, to note is that the the um, the head of Ukraine's military intelligence, General Kirill Badanov, he's said that actually Russia is not going to abandon Hezon City and and is instead reinforcing it um, for the for the battle to come. So a few days ago, we saw the the um, the new Russian overall theater commander, Sergei Sorovkin saying that um, the, the town's going to be abandoned, Ukrainian artillery have, have, have wiped out the supply lines, etc., etc., and that they were pulling out. Um, suggestions here from Badanov that, that actually that's all, that's all false, um, uh, a, a deception operation, and that actually they are going to stand and fight for Hezon. Now, we've talked about this many, many times. Hezon, obviously, was the, is the, uh, the first city to fall and the only uh, regional city uh, to, to fall to Russia. Um, so it has huge symbolic relevance to Putin and to and to and to this whole this whole thing it also it's vital if russian forces want to get around that corner there to push sort of west through mikolaev and down towards odessa which i think is an utter fantasy at the moment and i can't see can't see them ever getting on the back foot again there but um the town of uh, uh of hezon does have have great tactical significance not only for that but also sorry the city of hezon but if it if it falls or when when it's when it's taken the area is taken back by Ukraine, then that that leads straight down to uh, Crimea and really threatens those supply lines to Crimea, which is Russia's jewel in the crown here, and they will um, uh, you know that 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 will be of of great significance to them. I will um, I'll take a little pause there. Lots of other things to talk about, but I'll let someone else have a go. Thanks, Tom. Francis, can I come to you? You've got quite a few updates for us outside of Ukraine on politics. Uh, the United Kingdom has a new prime minister. It's former Chancellor Rishi Sunak. You've been doing some reading into his views on Ukraine. Uh, what can you tell us? Thanks, David. And yes, good afternoon, everyone. We do have a new prime minister. Last week, you and I were broadcasting live as Liz Truss. The previous prime minister was resigning in the process of resigning. And indeed, we have seen her speak this morning outside of the uh, famous black door of number 10 Downing Street. And her last remarks were quite punchy on the uh, economic issues that led to her uh, downfall. And I'll come back to that in a moment because it's relevant to Rishi Sunak. But she had some very strong words to say about Ukraine. And I'll quote her in full. Quote, democracies must be able to deliver for their own people. We must be able to out compete autocratic regimes where powers lies in the hands of a few. And now more than ever, we must support Ukraine in their brave fight against Putin's aggression. Ukraine must prevail and we must continue to strengthen our nation's defences. So setting out very clearly there what she sees her vision of British foreign policy to be. And of course, indirectly offering a challenge to Rishi Sunak to continue with her strong stance on Ukraine. Now, I spoke in the past about there was some 
suppose, concerns as to whether Rishi Sunak was quite as dedicated on the issue of, of Ukraine as, uh, as Liz Truss. I think that's slightly unfair, but it's still right to, to make the point. In his speech, he did make a, a passing reference to Ukraine. He said something like, and I wrote it down as he said it, that the war there must be fought to its conclusion. Now, I think we're meant to deduce from that that he means Ukrainian victory. But as I say, until we've seen the full transcript where they sometimes add a few additional remarks um, that weren't delivered, um, it's difficult to, to, to confirm that. But as I say, most of his focus indeed was on the economic situation. And that, of course, is very relevant in this context too, because he said, very strongly and very clearly that his priority as Prime Minister was sorting out the challenging economic and energy situation uh, here. And that being the case, if that is indeed his priority, then he may see some tension within the British Parliament uh, around the level of, 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 of commitment to Ukraine. As I say, I still think that, that, broadly speaking, the British Parliament is very, very robust on this. But as I say, it's something that, that I think is right to flag given that the economic competency argument is something that he's driving home very, very strongly. But just to come back to his earlier remarks on Ukraine, I think it is important to stress that about two months ago, he uh, gave a, a statement to the Kyiv Post, one of the main independent newspapers in Ukraine, for their Independence Day. And he his remarks there are very, very robust indeed. So I'll quote an extract from them. This is addressing the Ukrainian people. Your steadfast courage in standing up to aggression has given hope to peaceful and freedom-loving people around the world and sends a clear message to despots that no matter how the odds may be stacked in their favour, they will never prevail. Whatever the challenges here in our country, we Brits will always remain your strongest ally. So... As I say, reading from that, I think we can expect a very robust response from Rishi Sunak indeed. Thanks, Francis. There's a couple of other things I'd just ask you to talk about. The German president is in Kiev. It's a surprise visit. Can you tell us about that? Well, yes, this is an interesting intervention by the German president, Frank Walter Steinmeier. He's, as you say, made a surprise visit to Kiev. Now, just to give a little bit of background on him, he's previously the Federal Minister of Foreign Affairs from 2005 to 2009, I think, uh, and again from 2013 to 2017, as well as being Vice-Chancellor of Germany from 2007 to 2009. And uh, this is the, his first to the country since Russia invaded uh, back in February. Indeed, he was snubbed by Kiev for his year-long, years-long detente policy with Moscow. So I think we can see this in that context as an attempt by by the German state, which of course he represents, to to offer um, a more, more robust stance on on foreign policy affairs and to make it clear that their commitment is 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 very much on on Ukraine winning this winning this war as i said last week germany is now the third biggest uh, donator of weapons to ukraine so they've come a very long way uh, from their original policy with with regards to russia but also into providing armaments for for ukraine so i think this should be seen very much in that context he's going to be meeting president zelensky and then he's going to visit a town in the north of the country near the belarusian border which ukraine says has been liberated from russian troops but has left, been left with its infrastructure destroyed. So it's, a, it's an example here, as I say, of a diplomatic visit, which is, is largely of, of symbolic value to, to show German 
and commitment to Ukraine. But I'm sure there will also be some very significant conversations taking place behind closed doors. Thanks, Francis. Can I just stay with you for one last update before we go back to Dom to talk about some uh, final tactical updates and then come to Colin? But Francis, there's been some anger in in the United States. A group of 30 House liberals in in the Democratic Party are urging President Biden to shift his strategy on the Ukraine war. Can you tell us what they've said and uh, how much we should read into this? Yes, big story from the US. This group of 30 House liberals urging President Biden to dramatically shift his strategy on the Ukraine war and pursue direct negotiations with Russia. Now, this is the first time that prominent members of his own party have pushed for a change in policy to Ukraine. We spoke at length last week about the Republican Party, um, representatives of the Republican Party being much more um, uh, critical, shall we say, of of the idea of a blank check to Ukraine. But this is the first time that we've really seen a shift in, in attitudes within the Democratic Party itself. There's a letter sent to the White House, which was reported in the Washington Post, uh, putting more pressure on Biden uh, to sustain domestic support for the war effort, but at the same time mitigate that with the potentially difficult winter and the pressure electorally from the Republican Party. Now, you can imagine there's been quite considerable pushback from this letter, which many see will play into Russian propaganda this idea of, of, of weakening Western uh, confidence on, on, on the war. Um, but actually, I don't think that it should be read necessarily as, as a profound shift in American political or popular opinion. Rather, this is a very narrow wing of the Democratic Party, a progressive wing within the Democratic Party, which remains committed in its own words to... Uh, to to supporting Ukraine in their fight for their democracy and freedom, but believe that there is an alternative way in which to achieve that. Quite what that is, uh, they don't make clear, but it's clearly something around more of a diplomatic settlement. But I think this is uncomfortable reading, no doubt, for President Biden in the current context and particularly worrisome in in, in Kyiv as well. But as I say, no doubt in Moscow, there'll be cock-a-hoop at this. Thanks, Francis. Uh, Dom Nichols. Yeah, I got one comment about the the letter from the um, the Democratic Caucus. I mean, I I don't think this is a bad intervention. I urge everybody to go and read it. It's only you know a page and a bit long, so I you know I I, I could only do, do it in five breaths. It's quite easy. Um, go and search for it because if you just read the comments about it, um, and I've seen comments saying it's it's a gift to Russia. I've seen other people say no, no, it's it's really hard on Russia and it's good for Ukraine. I mean, you know, you can take from it whatever whatever you like. I think you need to go and read the original text and and, and please I, I do urge you to do to do that. It does make the point that the that Ukraine has to prevail and that this this illegal and disgusting war is is the the fault of Putin. Um it goes on to it, it raises the raises the idea that um how is this war going to end? And I've said before, most most wars, well, all wars end and most wars end by negotiation. So, uh, I mean, I have offered an opinion that this might be one of those wars that bucks the trend and, and there's a military defeat, an outright victor on the battlefield. Um, but you've got to consider the uh, all alternatives. And I think this letter um, is helpful in raising the level of conversation. Russia will, as Francis says, Russia will, will take from this. The Kremlin will parrot this as, ah, there's cracks in the alliance. They're calling for you know, Ukraine to negotiate and la, 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 la. That's not what the letter says. The, the letter basically says to ask Biden to set out what 
what's going on here? How does he, how does he see it ending? Um, and the, the, I spoke to Patrick Porter, um, professor of international security at University of Birmingham. Pat Porter, seventy six, I think he is on uh, on Twitter. Really good guy to to follow. And he's basically he was making the point that that if if we the external supporters, I hesitate to use the West because you know there's lots of people not in not in the West who support Ukraine and want to see Russia defeated here. But if if we're not not prepared to physically get on the ground um, and fight, then where is the limit? If the limit is just to arm and arm and arm and arm and arm and fund 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 Ukraine, it, okay, that that might be a coherent policy position. But you've got to state that that we need our our political leaders to state that because an open ended war with an open-ended checkbook i mean it, it just doesn't work like that it's not the case that that U- ukraine is simply able to to set the war aims here and and the external supporters then just just keep sort of stumping up because we have got skin in the game we're not actively on the battlefield bleeding i totally accept that however we do have skin in the game here because there is a chance at the back end of this that there could be a nuclear escalation and we're obviously involved in that so we have legitimate policy um, aims, le- legitimate national and international aims here. Now, at the moment, that's, those are being exercised through support for Ukraine. But I think what this letter does is is call for a more coherent discussion about what this end might look like. And the idea, Pat Porter says, so the, the idea, the idea of just using the word negotiation means that you're some sort of you know appeasement uh you know, moscow friendly you know putiniska i mean it, it, it's not that life is never that simple it's not one or the other um he says this is a quote from, from patrick i'm going to be writing about for tomorrow anyone referring to negotiations is dismissed as fringe or isolationist it suits the hawks to paint anyone not supporting their position as neville chamberlain and if you know patrick porter you can hear him saying ah, neville chamberlain i mean he's a great guy but you know what he's saying is there that there's got to be some middle some middle ground. And just talking about what might negotiations look like does not mean that you are saying Ukraine, you've got to give up. We're all sick and tired of this. It's a it's a long cold winter. But we've got there's got to be room for discussion and debate to see what the the rational end state of this might be. Because as as I said, you know, we we're all involved here. Uh, well, Colin Freeman, thank you so much for joining us. We wanted to talk about a piece of yours you've written. It's up on the website. It's extraordinary. You've spoken to two US ex-servicemen who were, who were captured in Ukraine. They were military volunteers. And you talked to them about their experience as POWs. I guess the, 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 the most important place to start is, can you tell us who, who were they and why did they go? Uh, yes, uh, these were two guys, um, Alex Droik uh, and Andy Huin. Uh, I apologise, I may have not pronounced their surnames correctly, but um, they're both uh, guys from the United States. Um, both lived in Alabama, both military veterans um, for serving in the U.S. forces. Both decided to go to Ukraine to volunteer to fight with the Ukrainians as part of the International Legion, the uh, uh, the, the the Legion of foreign volunteers from all around the world that also includes a number of Britons, uh, French people, um, folk from generally all over the place, really. Uh, Why did they go? Well, they said uh, they were watching the early days of the war and uh, it felt like watching um, a bully, uh, bullying a kid in the classroom. That was the the way um, Andy put it. Uh, And he said, I want to be seen as one of those kids who didn't just see, uh, didn't just sit and let it happen. So off they went. They started, this was going back to uh, about May, June time, I think. Um, they started off um, as uh, tr- doing, doing training missions and so on, working with the International Legion, but were keen to actually put their skills 
uh, into the combat field. Um, and um, so they went up towards Kharkiv and spent time with a voluntary a volunteer unit there, mainly of foreign volunteers, um, but uh, serving under the command of the Ukrainian army. Uh, things did not go well on their very first mission. They were in a firefight where they were ambushed or ran into a much larger group of Russian troops, so about 10, 10 of their own guys and about 80 or so Russians, um, and they were duly captured. Um, this was on June the 9th. Um, and as you can imagine, all kinds of horrible things went through their heads. They, they expected that they would be executed, um, and uh, they were tortured uh, relentlessly while they were in captivity. Some pretty grim stuff, which we'll come back to in a minute. But um, the, the reason we've been able to interview them uh, was because last month in September, they were freed in uh, prisoner exchange along with five Britons and a number of other European and uh, uh, North African volunteers um, in exchange for, I think, something like 200 Russian soldiers and also um, a prominent Ukrainian, uh, a prominent pro-Kremlin politician, Viktor Medvedchuk, who was being held by uh, Ukraine. So th that prison swap went ahead. The, uh, the guys are now back in America recovering from their ordeal, and uh, we did an interview with them. So can we talk a little bit about, I mean, it's an, it's an awful thing to talk about, but what were the conditions like in, in their captivity? We've heard all sorts of reports about interrogation techniques and torture and conditions for POWs, Ukrainian and, and foreign. But could you talk a little bit about what, what they said their experience was like? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I mean, broadly speaking, they were held for, I think, about 100 days. And the, the, the torture and the mistreatment um, went on pretty much for the whole time. Certainly it was pretty bad in the first month, six weeks. I think that was when it was its worst. It was the kind of things you might expect beatings, um, kickings, sleep deprivation, um, being put in stress positions for hours on end, uh, being told they were going to be executed. Um, but when you're doing interviews like this, I should say, actually, that when you know that's the, the, the kind of life experience that you're interviewing somebody about, um, you have to really focus in on one thing. You can't really expect them to to narrate the entire thing, A, because it would take forever, and B, because you, you're talking about potentially extremely traumatic um, experiences that they've been through. Um, so I got I said to them, look, could just talk about one or two incidents in detail. So um, uh, they talked initially about the start when they were first captured, they were blindfolded and hooded, and at that point they thought they were just going to get executed on the spot. Um, uh, as it happened, as it turned out, that was just a routine battlefield precaution, I think, in terms of taking prisoners of war. Um, uh, and that, that actually the soldiers who caught them, the ones who they expected might execute them in the heat of battle, actually treated them relatively well. Um, you know, soldiers, you know, having some respect for soldiers, as they put it. Um, but they were then taken across the border into Russia and um, spent a week in what they described as, or sorry, uh, and then over to the um, uh, the Donetsk People's Republic, the breakaway pro-Russian zone of Ukraine. And that was where things got pretty rough. Um, and um, at one point in particular that they told me about, they were, um, uh, they were electrocuted. They were brought into a basement room and um, met with a, a, one particular interrogator who 
was the only one of all the people who interrogated them who did not wear a mask. And uh, th their nickname for him was Dead Eyes because apparently his, his eyes were just dead and emotionless and he looked like somebody who did not have a scrap of humanity in his, uh, in his soul at all, they put it. And uh, that certainly appeared to be the case given what he did next, which was to electrocute them. He had a, a kind of what they described as a battery shaped, uh, a car battery shaped device with a couple of metal wires on that he would clip to their one clip to their ear and one clip to the metal handcuffs that they were um, they, they were chained in, and uh, he would electrocute them. Um, do it for only I think that these sessions only lasted for about two hours, and the the electricity was only applied about five times for about thirty seconds per time. They're not really sure. They said you know time warps when you're in that situation. But uh, they said it, it felt like forever, and what looked like a fairly harm or relatively low-powered car battery um, actually had a, a dial on it that you could dial up and down to presumably adjust the voltage. And they said it, it was the most exquisite pain they've ever experienced, um, far worse than um, getting a, a jolt from a, um, you know, a plug or something in your house. Um, Partly, I think, because the electricity was wired to two sides of their body. Normally, if you electrocute yourself accidentally in the home, it's because just one part of your body has touched an electrical current. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that was the that 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 was probably the worst bit. Um, another very hard bit, though, from a psycholo psychological point of view, what they said was hearing other people being tortured in neighbouring cells and hearing screams and so on, and thinking that. What on earth is going on on in there, and could that be me next? Um, they they also had um, uh, heavy metal music played to them. Uh, uh, I I think something about eighty songs were played in a row, mainly by a German heavy metal band called Rammstein. Um, the their captors presumably thinking this would gradually send them mad, unaware though that uh, both of these guys were actually um, big heavy metal fans in their youth. And said uh, one of them, uh, Alex said, "Oh yeah, Ramstein. I, I know these guys. I really like them." Um, so that 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 meant the, the 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 noise torture was not quite as bad as it could have been, and they actually used it as a way of marking time because they were being held in windowless cells where you had no idea of the passage of time, which apparently is quite a psychologically jarring experience. Um, but they worked out that, well, uh, if you have 80 Ramstein songs at, say, four minutes each, um, that's roughly something like five or six hours. So if, that, if we get that for three times a day, then that's roughly a day has gone past, um, which, given what they were going through, was apparently not a bad thing uh, by comparison to some of the other um, uh, mistreatment they were getting, just merely knowing roughly how much of, of how many hours of the day had passed was a bonus can i can i ask um well we know from a few months you know from a few months ago that the russian authorities would describe foreign fighters as, as mercenaries and that's how they sort of said right you, you know you're getting the death penalty is that partly why they were treated so badly and if not sort of what 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 kind of information were they trying to get from them i, I guess what i'm really asking is to what extent were they torturing them just for the sake of it? And to what extent were, was, was, did it have any sort of goal? For, you know, were they trying to get information from them? What was the point? When they were first caught, they both thought, like, oh, God, you know, we're Americans. 
our country is arming the uh, Ukrainian army and uh, with weapons that are being used to kill Russian soldiers, these guys are going to give us a very hard time and it may well be that we get executed. During the questioning, it, a, a lot of it apparently was just like we think you're CIA, which again, I, I suppose perhaps not an, un, uh, not an unreasonable assumption on the part of the, the, the Russian interrogators. Um, it, it, it became fairly clear, I think, fairly soon that they weren't CIA. Um, and then after that, it was just a, a lot of apparently random questioning. And yes, it does seem like random torture just for the sake of giving them a hard time. Uh, they were also processed through the courts of the Donetsk People's Republic, um, and were warned that they could probably expect a death sentence. Um, uh, in fact, the, the very day that they were caught, uh, these two Americans, death sentences, death sentences had already been passed on several of the British prisoners of war who uh, they were held alongside. So that, that, that was hanging over them as well. But it, it quickly became clear that the people who were holding them in the, in the DPR, the separatists, were, were keen to negotiate um, a, a prisoner swap. Um, and I think within within a couple of weeks, actually, because I was in touch with these guys' families, which is one of the reasons why we've interviewed them, um, within, a, within a couple of weeks, I think, um, officials from uh, the Russian side were in touch with um, people from the State Department saying, we want to we do a deal. So it seems that, uh, the, that certainly the death sentences were passed um, in, in order to increase their value as bargaining chips, in order to sort of say, well, look, we're not only going to let these guys free, but we're also going to spare their lives. So um, that, that just shows how generous we, the Russian side, are being, and therefore we expect some decent concessions in return. Can we talk a little bit about how they got out? I mean, you mentioned it was in a prisoner swap, but what did it look like for going from their cells to landing back in the US? What were the sort of mechanics of that? Yeah, they, they, despite being, being allowed to make kind of proof-of-life phone calls home occasionally, they were generally kept in the dark about the negotiations, which, is, as we now know, were ultimately brokered by um, uh, the Crown Prince of uh, Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, um, they were not really um, privy to any of that. And on the day that they were actually taken from their prison, they actually expected that they were, well, they didn't know whether they were going to be um, taken for execution or taken to be freed. And as it turned out, that was apparently the worst day of all their time in captivity. Uh, they were they were bound up, um, uh, handcuffed, etc., as usual, and also had plastic bags tied over their heads, and then with very little room to breathe, and then very tight masking tape put bound around their heads as well, and then chucked in a lorry, I think more or less on top of each other in stress positions, and then had about an eighteen or twenty four hour journey to a a place where they were picked up by a, a plane with Saudi officials on board. They said that that 18 to 24 hour journey was absolutely the worst bit of the whole thing. Just the, the discomfort was unbelievable. And um, Andy actually said to me during that time, he, he, he was saying to himself, even if he had known that release, lay, that freedom lay at the end of it, 
he said he wanted to just die at that point. Anything to get out of that 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 that, that sort of that tortured position. Um, so it, it must have been pretty hellish. Um, they were then handed over onto this plane where they were examined by Saudi medical officials. Although I don't think anything much was said at that point, they were they were not told, "Look, you're now free." And even as the plane took off, they were thinking, "This is all just some weird kind of." Um, set up and uh, will be five minutes in the air and then this plane is going to get shot down. That did not happen, of course. Um, they were duly flown to Riyadh, but it was not until they were on the ground in Riyadh and some US embassy officials came and spoke to them that they began to really realise, to convince themselves that they were, in fact, um, free men again. So they're now free. They're back in the US. They're recuperating and recovering from what sounds like one of the most awful ordeals um you could ever undergo what what did they say about well they're looking back now you know what what are their views on it would they would they want to go back do they regret going how do they talk about it now that they are um entirely happy with the their decisions to go obviously they said it could have worked out better but they had no regrets whatsoever um they would also continue actually to urge other volunteers who have the right skills um, to, to join the fight against Russia in Ukraine. They also felt that the prisoner swap itself was in some ways a kind of um, useful way of maintaining diplomatic back channels and confidence building between the two sides um, in the, as, lo- as long as prisoner swaps are being, are being continued that does mean that there is some line of communication, some opportunity for confidence building and, um, uh, and, and, and trust building between Russia and Ukraine and, and Washington. So the, the, their view was that, it, that in, in many ways, this was not a bad thing. Well, thank you so much for that, Colin. Thank you for your report. I would say to everybody listening, do go in and read it. It's on the Telegraph's website now. Dom Nichols, can I bring you in here? You've mentioned a few times one of your roles in the army was an interrogation instructor. You've listened to this conversation. You've read Colin's piece. Uh, what stands out to you? What would you like to comment on? Yeah, well, I mean, hi, Colin. Great to great to chat to you again. Great to have you on. I mean, just just listen to this. I mean, it is it is horrific. I mean, there's there's no other way of rationalising that as a human being, sentient human being. I mean, but what what this shows to me, I, so I was a um, conduct, conduct after capture instructor, resistance to interrogation instructor. What this says to me what, is that Russia, that, again, they just don't know what they're doing. This is this is this is not how you treat people on the human side, right? Let's let, let's keep that in the back of our minds. That that runs through the rest of my conversation. But this is not what you do as an interrogator. It's just simply not not how you. Uh, how you use uh, and forgive me for a moment but use that asset of a prisoner of war you know what do you want from a prisoner of war as as a as a cap as a, ca- a cap tour you want information and you want um leverage so you want information from the individual and you want to use that that individual as an asset for any possible subsequent prisoner swaps so it it, it makes sense to to keep them alive and keep them healthy um, so they can talk to you. No, you don't have to tie up more assets treating them, uh, and also you can then use them use them in the future. And of course, you then there's also the, the longer terms sort of reputation about what they think of you going back and the messages they um, they pass on and the stories in the Telegraph and so on and so forth. But that is a minor consideration. It's what the the information you can get out of them and and the and the the value they have as an asset. So I mean, this is just uh, torture, pain. Just does not does not work. It's been proven over time that people will just tell you anything. 
what, what they think you want to hear um, under 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 painful interrogation to make the pain stop. So it's, it's by no means at all uh, give you any get any decent information or any information you do get. You just can't you can't have any faith that it's that it's true. Now, Russian forces that are taking these two guys, Americans. Um, or I, I don't know if they could tell they were Americans or Canadian or some, some sort of North American accent. I mean, they would they would know that they're not Ukrainian, and therefore they would immediately go into a sort of special category. They'd, they'd want to know a bit more about these guys. They, Colin says they they thought they were a CIA to first uh, to, to start off with, but I mean, to to dismiss them immediately, such that they just treated them in the way they did, was was just absolutely incompetent. And what you want to do as a as a captive force is. Uh, maintain what's called the shock of capture. So, I mean, we talked about a little bit about this when we when we were looking at Mariupol and the the Azov-style defenders there. Um, and so, the shock of capture is that that initial shock that we all feel when when we sort of try to cross the road and a, and a car honks at us or whatever. That that immediate kind of oh my god, you know that that cold blast through your through your back and through your head. That that feeling of of everything suddenly suddenly changed. Well, at that point, for a for a soldier. Um, you're at your most vulnerable then if you're if you're in that in that frame of mind when you've lost control you don't know what's happening you're at your most vulnerable um, that's when you're most likely to to let slip a piece of information that you shouldn't have given or or, or form a bond with your interrogator that re- it really isn't healthy and so the idea for the interrogator is to maintain that shock of capture for as long as possible and that's not through pain that's not through stress positions but it's just through through messing with your head and not having any any um, knowledge of uh, of normal stuff, so time becomes all powerful. Um, and uh, uh, we were taught, I was taught, I taught um, that for a soldier you have to count. I mean, it sounds crazy. And if you're thinking, well, I might be, I might be in a captive here for for years at a time, then going one, two, three to work out the time, you know, is quite an ask. I, I grant you. So anything that you can hear, any ticking clocks, any any movement. If there's white noise being played through loudspeakers into your uh, into your cell, I remember I did I did an exercise once. I was being interrogated for 48 hours, and the white noise, the kind of <laughs> all that noise coming through the, the the loudspeakers, I noticed after a while that there was a glitch. It was obviously on a I don't know a, a tape or a, a CD or <laughs> it was quite a while ago, as you can tell. Um, you know, but I could count between those, and then I just listened for that little that fault, and I could work out the minutes and I could work out the time. Now, okay. This is a very minor thing, but it keeps your mind going. It keeps you active. It keeps you present. It gives you some power. It gives you some control over your life. So that thing about time is all important. Think about the music that Colin wrote about. These guys actually liking heavy metal. I mean, it's crazy to play to play music. If you're going to play music like that, play it backwards or put two tracks over the top of each other so it's a complete jumble. Don't play some music where there's a one in a hundred, one in a thousand, whatever chance that the bloke's going to go... Oh yeah, I quite like this one. You know, it just it just it brings these people back to the present. It gives them power, and it and it takes that power away from the interrogator. I'll I'll call a halt there because I, I could go on at length about this. It is a fascinating subject. The psychology of it all is absolutely fascinating. But the one thing I'll end on, and Colin, there is a question mark at the end of this, so please please forgive me. The the thing that came out of the U.S. experience of Vietnam is that people will talk. They will eventually crack. They will give information. The idea is to 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 allow that to happen 
over as long a period as time, but you do what you have to do to survive. But the thing the Americans said, and the motto of their of their uh, sort of uh, the MIA, the Missing in Action agencies and the Veterans agencies, is return with honour. You do what you have to do to survive. Do what you have to do to get yourself back to your family and your friends. But you return with honour. You don't sell out your mates. You don't sell out your your cause or your country and all that kind of stuff. You you hold on to that little bit of humanity for as long as you can. As long as you can face yourself when you get home and you're on your own and you're you know staring at yourself in the mirror. As long as you can think to yourself, yep, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I. Cried. I made a mess of myself. I, I, you know, I was complete. I was completely demolished by the end of it. But I, I did all right under the circumstances. You know, return with honour. Because if if you do not, and this is a lot of large experience that again came from Vietnam and and well all, all conflicts, then those 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 issues can eat away at you, and it leads to veteran suicide and mental health issues and and all the rest of it. So so, Colin, my question to you is: Do these guys? Did they did they sound to you as if as if they had passed that personal test. Are they going to survive here for all the mental hang-ups that they will undoubtedly have, the, the traumatic stress they've been through? But do you think that they they will be able to... What little information they gave you, I'm sure there's there's a lot more, but do you, do you think they'll be okay? Will they, will they, will they have, have lived up to that, that badge of return with honour? My sense was yes. I mean, first of all, they were talking to me um, only a, two or three weeks after this dreadful ordeal which i would have thought would have left most people you know as as quivering wrecks they both had conduct under capture capture training before now although um i I doubt when you you know in extreme duress like this that that would be of of that much help long term but um they, they both seem pretty upbeat um and i don't think they would have been doing interviews if they hadn't been um, one of them also had actually, he had served in Iraq um, in about 2009 um, uh, with the U.S. Army. And he had actually suffered PTSD for quite a long time after that, um, so much so that he was struggling to find work. And um, uh, he, he went to Ukraine d- despite this, despite the, the, the PTSD being so bad that he'd actually been, you know, he was on a full-time war veteran's pension at the age of 40. Um, uh, and I, I said to him, you know, was it a good idea, you know, what, why on earth go, go to Ukraine to fight another war if you're already suffering PTSD? And he said that the, the kind of PTSD he had, which was born out of being a top gunner in Baghdad, which, um, for those of you who don't know, means somebody who... Uh, goes around in in army convoys going through the streets, um, leaning out of a turret to manning a machine gun, and means you're an absolute sitting duck for any insurgents or anybody else. And um, having worked in Baghdad at that time myself, I can tell you it's not a job I would have fancied. Chances of getting shot at, car bombed, etc., very, very high. Um, And he said that the, the PTSD he got was mainly one that just meant that all his reactions were suited to wartime and he wasn't good at dealing with peacetime situations and he felt that going to Ukraine might actually um, help him because he would be back in a combat environment where he felt comfortable. He he also said actually that he said when he was there prior to being captured um, uh, or that this is what he told his mother who had in turn told me was that she said she'd had messages back from him saying I feel really happy I feel glad to be here in a, a you know, a fighting for a clear moral cause. Um, I, I'm not sure that 
perhaps applied so easily in Iraq where public opinion was a lot more divided. So I, I think it, it, going and serving in, you know, in, in Ukraine did give him some of the sort of the moral salvation that he was seeking. It was um, it, it, it definitely seems to have been a boost for him. I think now that he's come out of the, um, the prisoner of war experience, um, I, I think it, my sense is that he will probably be OK, although obviously it's, it's, it's a, a, a grim ordeal he's been through. And um, you're only seeing the, the public facing side of someone when you interview them like this. Well, thank you, Colin. Thank you, Dom, for your questions. Colin, is there anything we haven't spoken about, um, about, about these men, about what they went through, that you think is important for our, our listeners to, to know? Just one thing, in case any listeners are wondering, well, why are we talking about, why, why are we interviewing two Americans rather than all the British POWs? And the, the, the paper has a specific connection with these guys. When they were first taken capture, one of their friends um, tipped me off to the fact that they'd been caught, that their, their unit commander, uh, Ukrainian commander, did not want the news being made public. Their friend took a big gamble and tipped me off. I, I knew him through various sort of contacts I'd made out in Ukraine amongst the volunteer, the volunteer networks because he was worried that they would get killed on the spot by whichever unit um, had taken them. And his gamble was that by putting it out in the public domain, it would mean that um, news of their capture was likely to filter up to the high command at the Kremlin, which would mean that they were um, uh, probably, who would probably reason that they were better kept alive than dead because of their value as bargaining chips. So we did a story on it back at the time. I mean, whether they would have been killed or not, is it's impossible to say. I'm not sure that the, the, the around the time that we broke the news of their capture, though, it was just when they were getting taken to the uh, so-called kind of black prison in um, in Donetsk, where their their torture began. So um, uh, it, it certainly didn't sort of um, lead to any short-term improvement in their treatment. I'm afraid. Well, thank you, Colin, for coming on to speak to us about that. Uh, thank you, Dom, and thank you, Francis. I know there are a few more tactical and other updates we need to talk about. So. Dom Nichols, can I come to you first? Yeah, the only other thing I wanted to mention, and sorry, I possibly should have put this in at the front, was the um, the note today from UK Defence Intelligence making mention of the number of Russian attack helicopters that have been shot down. They make uh, they, they reference 23 KA-52 NATO designation Hokum attack helicopters. These are the big, the, the very wide helicopters um, that, we, that we've seen out there uh, operating in Ukraine. 23 have been have been lost uh, over this uh, since, since February the 24th, which they're saying is over a quarter of the in-service fleet of about of about 90. And what they're putting this down to is their their inability to uh, to really put up with uh, man portable air defense known as man pads in in the trade. Um and th- so this is I mean the, the the real killer for um for helicopters in particular is not your super duper anti-aircraft this that, and the other missile. It's the it, it's the the person on the ground who's got a rifle that shoots at you or a, or a man pad a, a, a missile. And th- we know that anyway. But for Russia, through their experience in the last few months, to, to have not got something here, got something into service quickly, this has been going on now for well, eight, nine months, they are, they are unable to deal with this. And I had a good chat with a um, chap called Mark Velikot on, on, uh, on Twitter. Hi, Mark. Thanks for your, thanks for your comments. Um, he was head of engineering tech at BAE Systems in Australia, so he knows, knows a thing or two about, um, 
about countermeasures. And he makes the point that this lack of effective countermeasures that are, uh, that, that's not on the helicopters to start with on February the 24th, but have not been rushed into service now such that they cannot put up with these, uh, these manpad attacks. I mean, it just speaks of a, um, a, re- a really sort of uh, constipated technical um, innovation line or complete an absence of it that, that Russia can't quickly put their, their tech minds to to this problem and get something it'll be clunky and 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 won't be ideal and it won't work with the other systems on the aircraft but the fact they've not been able to get something on these aircraft over the last nine months speaks that they are they are not able to bring in um as you know as the british had to do and the and americans and others had to do in iraq and afghanistan this urgent operational requirement there's a problem we've not seen it before we've not had to deal with it before let's get something out there quickly now they've not been able to do that and that speaks of a real technical malfunction in, in their system and it does not all go well for the fight that it's yet to come, uh, particularly down south around Hezon, where that the the role that these helicopters will play that will play the KA 52s that that close air support um, to troops on the ground, um, they will not be able to do that properly because they will be they will be um, they will not be able to go far forward into the into the actual contact zone at the front um, for fear of being shot down. So I thought it was a very interesting observation there by Mark um, on the back of the, the today's defence intelligence note. Uh, but it does, I think, speak speak volumes about the wider Russian um, technical system. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Francis Sternley. Thanks, David. Just one story for me, um, if I may. It's about a six-month investigative piece, which has just been published by the open-source journalistic outfit Bellingcat, working with The Insider and uh, the German newspaper Der Spiegel. And it's, as I say, it's, it's a, a big investigative piece. It's a long read. And so I can only give a very, very brief summary of some of the details on this. And I would recommend that listeners go away and, and, and read about it in more detail. And it's about uh, how there's a secretive group of Russian military engineers who are purportedly those who are using the high precision missiles that have destroyed playgrounds and killed dozens of Ukrainian civilians in in strikes in early October. And the interesting details about this are about the how perhaps some of these individuals have been recruited. Many of them seem to have had a computer gaming background, um, given the kind of technology that they appear to be using and the research they've done into them, into what they were de- doing prior to that. There's been a lot of research using phone data about their colonel, their commander, who seems to have a an interest in trading coins online. So uh, again, uh, they, I only mention that because it's using this kind of information, this data trail, that they have been able to connect these people and the manner in which they are connected. And it seems that this clandestine group consists of three different teams of approximately 10 engineers each, with each team dedicated to one specific type of high precision missile and it appears that some of them have operated in Syria in the past which of course I also mentioned because of the significance of that war in defining the parameters of the war in Ukraine particularly of course with the connection of of the new commander so as I say it's a long read it goes into a lot of information but I think it's really relevant this because it talks about the kind of investigations that are now possible thanks to the internet it shows the system of, of Russian recruitment It shows the kind of research that's going to be being conducted in the years following the war. 
into war crimes. But most of all, I think it sends a very, very clear signal to those Russian operatives who are active in Ukraine that this isn't the 20th century. We now are able to, through the internet, through advanced technology, able to connect people and to discover who is responsible for the kind of incidents that we have been reporting now since the war began that constitute war crimes. So, as I say, this is something that I think many, many people who are operating in Ukraine should take very close attention to indeed, because ultimately it shows and underlines the point once again that in the 21st century you will not be able to get away with war crimes. Well, thank you. Dom, Francis and Colin. So, Dom, can I just come to you first for your final thoughts? Yeah, I just mentioned as final thought, we talked yesterday about the the whole dirty bomb thing. Russia is claiming that Ukraine, aided by the West, in particular the US and the UK, are developing a dirty bomb to explode somewhere. Dirty bomb is, um, as we discussed yesterday, a, a conventional bomb, but with radiological material, so nuclear waste effectively, normally in powder form. So it's not a nuclear explosion at all. It's a conventional explosion that can then contaminate an area. Um, Russia's saying that... that, that um, the uh, Ukraine is developing one of these. Ukraine came out very quickly yesterday and um, both Foreign Minister and Defence Minister Reznikov uh, called for or invited the, the UN International Atomic Energy Agency into the country to investigate the two sites that Russia said is being is responsible for for developing this. Um, and the, the news is that the UN nuclear safety inspectors are due to arrive shortly. That was a quote this morning from uh, Dmitry Kaleba, the, the foreign minister, due to arrive shortly to have a look at those um, look at those sites. And he thanked the IEA for their for their prompt response. I think that shows how seriously the world is taking this in terms of debunking um, Soviet. Oh, blimey. There we go. Paging Dr. Freud. Um, Russian misinformation here. Actually, it's the same thing. Um, I think it's very, yeah, very serious. The, the talk, talk of dirty bomb and these false flag attacks that that we think Russia was lining up to blame Ukraine for an attack, either just to discredit Ukraine, but then also possibly to to be able to retaliate in some way. So the, the world has been very united in pushing back against this narrative that, that Ukraine is developing a dirty weapon. Um, interestingly, we're expecting Russia's UN ambassador Vasily Nebenzia today, their their representative uh, on the UN Security Council, to take. He says he's going to take some um, some proof. Uh, to the to the UN Security Council um, of all these of all these claims. I mean, it's interesting. Look at Nebenzia. I mean, so he's on the on the UN Security Council. Suddenly, sees that as a really important body to take these uh, to take these claims to. Bear in mind, he stormed out of the UN Security Council just back in June when the European Council President Charles, Charles Michel accused Russia of using the, the grain supplies, the food, food supplies, as a, as a he called it a stealth missile against developing countries. Nebenzia couldn't handle that and, and walked out. So, you know, on the one hand, he's walking out of this UN Security Council and Russia are not accepting that this body is there to, to try and, and contain the worst of humanity in the 21st century. And now he's going back and saying, oh, no, no, actually, we, we do need it. It's really important that we have all this proof. And so I think we can just see in that that, that Russia are doing whatever they can, using whatever levers they can, pushing any buttons to try and maintain this narrative not only just over this dirty bomb, but just generally. They'll, they'll try whatever they can. It doesn't work. They get called out. They don't like it. Um, I think we just need to, as I said the other day, we just need to hold the line here, be, be concerned but not scared by these, by these claims. Um, I, think they, I, don't, I, I don't think there will be a dirty bomb attack. 
Um, but I, th- I think this is Russia, Russian propaganda uh, really pushing it as far as they can go. And I think they've been quite surprised at the united front that came back at them very, very quickly from the, uh, the world's response. Well, thank you very much for that. Dom Francis Sternley, thank you so much for your time. Would you like the final words? Thanks, David. I just wanted to end again on the new British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. And since we've been on air, President Zelensky has tweeted his congratulations. But I just wanted to draw attention to a particularly noteworthy response from India. Um, His election is on the front pages there. And Prime Minister Modi has tweeted his personal congratulations. I think this just underlines the opportunity that Rishi's elections offers for Britain and the West. His background, he He's of Asian heritage. He's a practicing Hindu. Is is something that really underlines uh, one of the central post. Brexit policies of, of the Conservative Party, which is this idea of, of global Britain, one that's not just con- constrained in the, in the European context. So there's that side of it. But there's also the fact that his background, he was a former chancellor, um, somebody whose who's career was in banking. So his sort of technocratic and economy focused sign will also appeal to, to Brussels and to the European Union. And many comparisons have already ba- been made with the French President Emmanuel Macron. So in many ways, he offers a fresh start for Britain on the world stage. And we just have to hope that he he doesn't waste that. But the other um, thing I think that's just worth underlining in the India context is I've spoken about in the past is that there are the various UN votes that have taken place where India has abstained on the issue of Russia and whether to condemn them outright. And I think that, as I say, in this context of a new British Prime Minister, someone who clearly wants to work very closely with Prime Minister Modi, one hopes that um, that there may be some opportunities afforded there for an improved dialogue with India and maybe, just maybe, persuading them to condemn Putin in stronger terms. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to make sure you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.